This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, this is Emma, Senior Account Manager at the Webby Awards. A lot of people have been asking if there are more opportunities to enter your work into the 24th Annual Webby Awards. Well, there are. The Webby Awards final entry deadline is December 20th. Enter now at webbyawards.com to make sure your work is viewed by the best minds across the internet and have a chance to win a Webby next May. We have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including brand new categories for voice, podcasts, social, student work, and more. Head on over to webbyawards.com to learn more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. How to win, teach others. To a more colorful world. We're all the creative type. Take a break to create. Hey there, and welcome back. For anyone who's part of the design world, the name John Maida immediately commands respect. Having served as the president for the Rhode Island School of Design, transitioned to the world of Silicon Valley, and now in a new role at Publicis Sapient, our next guest has had a breadth of experience with the wildly changing worlds of design and technology. John walks us through career-defining moments like meeting his idol, legendary graphic designer Paul Rand, and what he learned on the way, including the often exclusive nature of the tech world. He has great insights into the walled garden of modern design and who really gets to participate. Whether it's a small business in Detroit without the resources to build a website, or a tech company with teams lacking in diversity. Having figured out at a young age that learning business was a necessary component to succeeding in art, John has been at a fascinating intersection for most of his career, and he tells us where he sees the future of the industry headed. He also tells us a really great story about a very important sandwich in his life. We start off talking about John's early life and what led him to working with computers. Well, you know, there's that that Marvel movie Black Panther. At the very end, I always cry. I've cheer heard up. It. Okay. Um, well, it's a really great movie. And at the very end, there's some kids playing in a neighborhood, and they see this person at the very end, the main character, and the little boy says, who are you? And it's a kind of a symbol of kind of like, you know, this boy, will he ever like leave the neighborhood that he grew up in, mm. which wasn't a great neighborhood. And I always think about how, in many senses, that was me. I grew up in Seattle. Okay. My parents had no college education, uh, no high school as well. And they had a dream that one of us would go to school one day, college one day. Wow. So I consider that being a kind of anomaly that I made it this far is a real thing to be thankful for. 
I would imagine I could be wrong here, so please correct me. My guess though is that they modeled other types of behaviors that were inspired you to work hard and figure out what you wanted to do and that kind of thing. Oh, that's that's a no? great framing. Maybe well, that's a great framing. It's a well. There's a belief that if you work hard, things will work out well. It's not true, actually, you know, but uh, I, I believed that, and that's what they taught me. And I feel lucky because I lived on the the not nice side of Seattle. Hmm. And because of the civil rights movement where I lived, which was primarily African-American and Samoan Americans, schools were broken up where I was bused from the poor side of Seattle to the nice side of Seattle. Hmm. And if that didn't happen, I would never have seen a computer. Wow. And if that didn't happen, I wondered like, where would I be today? What was the first computer you were using in, in school? Or was uh, that was, one that you saw that, that you went to uh, Yeah, it was, um, well, the, there weren't computers everywhere at the time. Yeah. Uh, computers were useless. Well, they were owned by the military, generally speaking, but the military needed people to learn computing through math classes. And so it was in the math class. There was one computer and it couldn't do anything. There's no internet. Yeah. It was useless. There was no software for it. And so you had to write code in it. It was a Commodore PET. Oh, that's, I was going to guess what the, the IBM TRS-80 is what oh, I was going to get. Oh, those were out there too. Yeah, that was a little later. Hmm. But I remembered uh, finding it such an interesting thing to use because you could just sort of type things in and it would do things for you. And it's a strange device. Yeah. It was so useless, but interesting. Right. So I stuck with computers. Did you, at an early age, have sort of an interest in design in general and how things worked? Was that, um, or was that something that came later? Well, I was, uh, I was good at math and art, as all my teachers told me. And okay. uh, but my parents would always say I was good at math, kind of leave out the art part. Right. So I went to MIT Engineering, and in later life, I discovered that I wanted to understand the non-engineering part of experiences. So I went to art school. Hmm. afterwards so you got the art part in there after all yeah got a mixture engineering and, and art interesting how did you like the art school after having gone to to mit i mean those are two really uh, different it, it was like night and day <laughs> yeah, in a sense, yeah. but it was the same kind of uh, nerds from different parts of the world basically uh -huh. different fields i really enjoyed solving one problem is that when you are an engineer you know what you, you know how to build something but you don't know what to build and by being in art school, I knew what I wanted to build. And so when I came back to computers, I could do both. Hmm. I knew what to build with software. I had a vision for what I wanted to do as an artist, and it just kind of happened that way. The intersection that you describe, it's like between arts and sciences, is sort of, you know, I think some people would say is at the core of like what inspired a lot of the internet and a lot of the web, right? Was those two things coming together. Of course, the technical means of being able to publish all these pages that anybody could get to and all those kind of things and network and all that. But then what was going to be on the pages um, and all the sort of like human creativity that that eventually unleashed. Place me in a bit of computer time when you were in art school. Where are we like in, in uh, web that time? That was in the uh, early 90s. Okay, the internet so... hadn't really kind of stuck yet. At MIT, we had email super early. Some people don't remember that it used to be you couldn't email a computer, you had to put in the address every computer along the way. So you'd have to send it to like Berkeley, send it to whatever, and you have to put it in the address. Right. So it would get there. Uh. Um, it wasn't automated. I remember being in art school, not really having a computer. And it was quite liberating because 
I had to relearn the world because I would make things happen in ink. And then I would, with my left hand, you know, reach for control Z or command Z. You can't undo anything in the physical right. world. Yeah. So reacclimating was really cool. But if anything, it was combining the two that really became interesting. I was all set to just stay in, in the art world, uh, non-computer world. But I had a professor who said to me that when you're young, do something young with yourself. Because when you get old, the classics will still be there. Oh, that's interesting. So I thought, oh, okay, let's. So I bought a Next Cube, started running software again. And I was like, whoa, I know how to write software. I forgot. And I know what to create. And so it was fusing the two together that actually made things happen. And But everything I made was for CD-ROMs, which couldn't really travel very far. But once the internet came online, I could put stuff on the, the web. And when Java came out, I began to write things in Java, uh, things like calendars for Shiseido, interactive things for Sony. This is before Shockwave and Flash. Mm. So I was playing with how to do this and people thought it was strange that I could code and do the art part at the same time. Yeah, I mean, today, there's a lot of people who are who do that, you know, who are who use these computer tools to really express themselves artistically. But, you know, a while back, it was few and far between who had both sets of, you know, maybe not gifts, but certainly skills at least. That was very rare. Yeah. Um, that's why I was called back to MIT. There was a professor there named Muriel Cooper who was able to fuse together Bauhaus-style design world and computer science and computer graphics. And she died, and they wanted to hire her successor. And so they invited me to interview at MIT. Hmm. But the, the day before I went to MIT, I was in Connecticut visiting the designer Paul Rand. When I was at MIT, the reason I went to art school, I, I discovered a book by Paul Rand and opened it up. And I thought, wow, this person is really good at this, whatever this thing is called design. So I actually went to art school because of Paul Rand. So hmm. many years later, just from my interview at MIT, I went to his house to visit him. This was before, like, there's Uber and stuff. So it was kind of yeah. hard to get to places. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, uh, I you know, get up in Connecticut, like, uh, t to get a taxi, go out to the boonies and like visit his house. It's in this forest. And um, I wasn't sure how to get back. I was looking like, oh, I don't know how to get back. And then I uh, opens the door. This person, he's like 80, in his, in his 80s, and looks at me and says, You know, my assistant is sick, so you'll have to work today for me for free. <laughs> I was supposed to be there like, like a half hour appointment, you know? And I said, well, okay. So he came in, and I was working with him. He was finishing his last book huh. called From Last Go to Brooklyn. Okay. Which is kind of cool that I found him I found him in his book. And then there I was in his studio finishing his book. You know, you go to someone's house. There weren't snack bars back then or water bottles. I mean, right. I just went somewhere like, I hope I'm going to get thirsty. I'm going to get hungry. So I'm there like working at a studio, and I'm like getting really hungry. Um, You're hoping he's he's like rethought of the fact that maybe he's just, uh, just, just hoping, but maybe not. Maybe he'll make me like starve, et cetera. You know, it was so it was so brusque. Like you know, you're not you stay here and work for free. I said, okay, I'll do that. And he came out with a bologna sandwich, <laughs> and he said to me as he handed it to me, "I don't make sandwiches for everyone, you know." 
And I said, oh, thank you for the sandwich, you know. And so I'm eating the sandwich and really enjoying the, the sandwich. I was like, oh, this is so delicious. And he's sitting there like watching me eat. Pretty awkward. He's not eating. No, he's just looking at me eating, you know. <laughs> and then he says to me, young man, I have something very important to tell you. And I'm like, just so happy to have my sandwich. I'm kind of tuning him out because I was so hungry. He says to me, make lots of money. <laughs> and so I was like, whoa, this is like a weird moment where like, I thought he was going to tell me the secret to the universe. Right. Which he actually did. And you know, he went on and said, it isn't what you think. He said, you know, he grew up poor, he grew up with no background, no family background. And so he's self-made and he came to realize the following that anything you really love to do is not going to make any money. Anything you might not love to do too much will make you money. And he says, if you spend your life looking for the intersection of those two, just give it up, he said. He said, make money to pay for what you love to do. And the example he gave is, you know, you found me, you found my book. My book, you know, it had like five colors printed with silver and four colors. And he said, I paid for those colors. The publisher refused to pay for more than one color. Right. I did it my way because I had the capital. He did other things that made him the money to pay for the, pay for the book. UPS, ABC, Westinghouse, Cummins, Next, Limited, Morningstar. You're like, he did all these logos, you yeah. know? <laughs> so he was, uh, he had a, he captured a market there. Yeah. So how did you take that? Did you like... Did you move forward with that advice? Well, you know, I, I, I held on to it. Okay. I held on to it. I, I went to MIT the next day. I got the job. It's good when you, like, meet your hero and mm. you're, you're feeling pretty good. So as I got the job, I, I remember years later when I was in MIT, I was talking to the, one of the CFO-type people, and he was saying to me, and this is during the 2001.com crash, and he said, well, John, you're, like, a really creative person, so... Don't worry about the money. Let let us worry about the money. Right. And he was like the fifth person who said, don't worry about the money. Yeah. So I began to worry about the money. <laughs> and um, I got my MBA as a hobby. Yeah. To really not be afraid of it for lack of understanding it. And it was very freeing. At one point you were... I think it's kind of well-known, especially for audience. You were like the president of RISD, I think, or the, right? You had a pretty senior job there at RISD, which is Rhode Island School of Design, which is sort of like a lord position in the world of design. Like RISD is a, you know, heralded institution. Yeah, institution, yeah. yeah. And then then you went to Silicon Valley to work for Kleiner Perkins, which was like, I think when that happened, people were like, wow, John Maida left RISD to go to Silicon Valley. It's kind of shocking. Yeah. What, um... I'm interested in why, but I'm actually right. also as much interested in what was it like when you got to Silicon Valley with to start working for Kleiner wow. Perfect. That's that amazing difference. Well, I was motivated because I remember the first year I was president at RISD, I began looking for graduates who were doing things in the technology industry. People would tell me there there aren't any. They're all artists. They're all designers. They're not doing that. But visited San Francisco, and there were these. Two young men, Joe Gebbia, Brian Chesky. Yeah. They were in their apartment. They had this idea of renting out couches or air beds or that's never gonna happen. And every year I would go back to San Francisco, I'd visit them and 
the company was like four times bigger each time I visited them. Right. And, you know, Airbnb has become a phenomenon. And I was super curious, how does that startup grow at that rate? I wanted to understand the, the how of that. So when I had the opportunity to work at Kleiner Perkins, I thought, wow, what a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I took it and went out to the valley. And I think the first thing I learned is how companies get built. And I think before that, I had a naive notion that companies get built because they're good ideas. But it goes back to what Paul Rand told me. Companies get built when they're funded. Right. And they're good. Right. And that combination is is what I, I took away. Hmm. So what did you do when you were for Kleiner Perkins? What was your role? At Kleiner Perkins, I was their first design partner. And uh, my role was to work with all the startups from early to late stage and try to unlock how design could function better hmm. in relationship to engineering, in relationship to product. I also produced a report every year called the Design and Tech Report to look at investing trends in the tech industry vis-a-vis the design and creative sphere. What were some of the companies you were working with? Wow. I think like like every company that you could name is in that <laughs> portfolio, like right. the Ubers and the, and the Airbnbs. I mean, that, that there's so many. It was just such a learning experience for me. People ask me, what did I do? A lot of what I did was what I do in general, which is listen and find ways to align. You know, oftentimes as simple as if I'm an engineering person, I may not understand what design is and what kind of value it can bring. Because I speak both engineering and design, I can be like a like a therapist almost, like a like a conflict resolver. Mm. Or if there's a product person who's looking at business metrics and use cases and I can talk that language as well, and I can talk with a designer, I can talk with an engineer. So just someone who's like a, like a bridge. How well do you think founders at that time, and even today, understand the value of design? I'm sure, obviously, it depends on the founder, but as sort of like a generalization as a whole, do you think uh-huh. it's still something that like needs a lot of education, or do you think it's something people really today kind of get inherently? Well, I think the problem with the word design is it's poorly designed. Mm. You don't know what it means. Right. That's why in the design and tech report, I broke it down into three kinds of design. The first kind of design is classical design, like your glasses or your checkered shirt. They're like things that have been made in the physical world since the times of the Bauhaus. It's things that look good, feel good, smell good, taste good. Then there's design thinking which is more of an organizational consensus set of processes. It's ways to collaborate. It's nothing to do with your table or your shirt or glasses. It's about how to get people to share their ideas, uh, diverge and converge, to create a safe place to innovate. And that's done well in large organizations. Classical designers usually hate design thinkers. They'll say that they're not real designers realities are not, but they often make six figures. So go figure. (laughs) The 
Third kind of designer is a computational designer. Computational designer is someone who understands code, understands the networks, understands digital product, understands data. This kind of designer is very different from the other kinds of designers, and they're the ones that are creating the uh, outsized value in, in tech today. And so oftentimes when I work with companies, I ask, what kind of designers do you have? There are three kinds. And in doing so, they can say, oh, I have all these classical designers who are incredible at making marketing creative, but they, they can't do this design thinking thing. They can't do computational design. And so it's no surprise that that's not working out. Or if you have all design thinkers and you're hoping they'll make an incredible marketing creative piece or they'll be able to do digital product design, it's not, not, not in their vocabulary. Right. Were there things that really surprised you about the way commercial business operated? Had the MBA that you got, had that sort of already prepared you for it? Because I, I just think of, and again, it's like a total generalization, but I just think of RISD, you know, as yeah. like this, like the academia of academia on some level. Huh. And Silicon Valley is being, like you said, oh. it's a night and day to some extent. Right. I mean, by, by being president, I'm also CEO. Sure. So I had to oversee the business, and I became president during the, the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. So I had to rebuild the business. Of um, RISD. Of a major not-for-profit, yeah. which was not easy at all. So it taught me a lot about a large organization and how it operates and stays afloat. So working in the startup space, or even the late-stage companies, seemed familiar because organizations are just people. Right. And people either work together or they don't. It's easy as that. Right. If they work together, then you have a better product. If they don't, product suffers. And then you went to Automatic. Yes. Creators of WordPress. And really is that fair to say? Well, you know, that's the thing about... Um, so Automatic is kind of like as Red Hat is to Linux. Yeah, it's hard to... I mean, Automatic it's actually, yeah. is to WordPress. Red yeah. Hat didn't make Linux. Right. Um, uh, Automatic didn't make WordPress, but it, it gets even harder because the uh, Matt, co-founder, Matt, of WordPress right. is a CEO of Automatic. So I can't tell you how much work the PR team does at Automatic. Like, well, we're not really the... And so I have a lot of empathy for the confusion that occurs. But Matt made WordPress, we could say that. Co-founded co- WordPress. Co-founded WordPress. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's, and that's the beauty of Matt because he, he's quick to say he didn't found it yeah he co-founded and he did and he didn't do it himself he'll also say he did it with a community of open source yeah uh, contributors and i think the the best part of that role was to work with understand the open source community and so yeah so tell me about the what the the job you were doing there what were your tasks with i was head head of design there Uh my role was to uh, grow and build the product design team and also reposition how Automatic worked in regards to how design is used, also in the WordPress ecosystem. It was quite a unique experience because Automatic is 100% all distributed, so there is no physical headquarters. Right. So I can slack as just as good as the millennials. Um, <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot. And I want to come back to that. You sort of, through that experience, you became really interested in this idea of distributed workplaces and I want to talk about that a little bit but yep some of the stuff I want to ask you about at automatic there's such scale 
right? Like, and I know at Kleiner Perkins, you'd work with Airbnb and with Uber and those had scale, but you were helping, assisting, consulting. It's not quite the same thing as being mm. the head of the design of that company, right? Oh, yeah. But at Automatic, I mean, we're talking about like a software product that I is know. like, it's global. It's every Cloud. type of person uses it. It's not just used by certain types of people who've gotten certain educations. It's really everywhere. And it just strikes me as like an awesome challenge to get to work on something that is just so prolific. You know, just, just seeing like, you know, there was a recent new investment in Automatic. So Automatic's going to keep on going. So it's such a, it's a unique company. It, it's unique in how it overlaps with the open source ecosystem. And it, it's unique because the co-founder of the open source project is also the founder of a private company. And I think my biggest takeaways are that an all-distributed company working in open source is always under scrutiny. So Matt's kind of like a mayor, essentially. Yeah, right. And he's a really good mayor. I mean, when he gets in front of people, I'm like, oh, that's a good mayor. Because he has to balance what people who do it do WordPress as a hobby, do WordPress as a livelihood, and also his own company that is working to profit off it as well. Mm. On the profit-making side, you know, a lot of what my interest was was developing um, competency and working with small to medium-sized businesses. It took me to different parts of Detroit, Appalachia, uh, Seattle, different towns. I would get involved with how small, medium businesses work, SMBs. Mm -hmm. And it was very humbling. It got me to my roots of when I was a kid growing mm. up in a store. Right. I came to realize that a lot of them have been left out of the fancy world. Yeah. Uh, to them, they're just first discovering that I have to use this online stuff and I'm just too busy with my real work and I barely have time to use the bathroom. So you're telling me to like someone's like, you know, like, like someone's photo? I don't have time for that. Hmm. Just sort of seeing them in, in action reminded me that those of us who live in this world are pretty far away. Right. You were working with those companies because you were trying to figure out how those companies might use WordPress. WordPress and, yes, and like what kind of features worked well for them, which kind of features were they looking for. And also, I, I built a passion for product management and how product management works. And so I was able to product manage a payment feature hmm. built on research, working with SMBs and launching it alongside them. Just to sort of like observe how many small businesses were popping up around having something as simple as a payment button right. was very rewarding. Yeah. So tell me, is there any one of the SMBs that you worked with that you particularly enjoyed? Or oh my gosh, yes. There was a, um, it's a photo business. It's Tom Bull's Photo. I actually redid their website for them. Um, it's a woman <laughs> in Colorado. You know, um, I, would, I really would like email people like, hey, can I redesign your website? And this is sketchy. What is this? And it's, oh, let me just fix it. You know, and so, it was so rewarding because you would just see how, you know, one person has a job, like you have a job, and then one day there's a side thing that you love to do, and you figure you can never leave this job, but you build a website, you build a community, you build a way to charge for workshops and photography, and at some point you have the capability for more financial freedom. Right. You get to choose what you want to do. Her name is Cree Bull, a teacher. Taught herself how to make a website. She's not a millennial, so she's a, she's a veteran teacher. And she taught herself how to make a website, and the website worked for her. 
and like a good product owner, she began to grow that. Right. And it was just, um, it, it made me realize how like a one feature in a cloud system can change one person's life, but also can change thousands, millions of people's lives positively. Yeah. Did you come to sort of conclude or find that like things like WordPress could help lots of different people all over the country who you were visiting, who you felt like had been sort of like left out of Yes, and I and I, I learned that through a gentleman named Hodge Flemings. He's in Detroit, and his vision was built upon noticing that a lot of businesses in Detroit were not visible on Google Maps, and so they would be immediately ignored because you don't know how they look or like how they are, and so you just assume you shouldn't visit them. So it was Hodge who got me interested in building websites. We built a website for a coffee shop in a part of Detroit where the politicians will show up to take photographs and they'll leave immediately. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So it's just like a, it's like a photo op kind of thing. Photo op, not, not a quote-unquote wealthy affluent part of Detroit, but a spirited, important part of Detroit. Hmm. And there's a coffee shop there, and me and Hodge built a website for the coffee shop owner there. And I'll never forget how, you know, when you change one person's life with what we take for granted. Like, if you walk into a... a you know, name your like office, you know, co-working space and say, hey, who needs a website? Like, I've got one. I've got one. I've got five. But if you go to places where they don't have one, they're like, wow, I have a website. It's a big deal. Right. And that just points to how imbalanced our world is. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things you're kind of touching on is there was this like promise of what the web, I'm going to say the web and not the internet for now, right? Because the internet's older. I'm going to talk about like the web came to popularity in the mid 90s and people started using it. And there was a sort of promise, this feeling about it that once we started using it, that, wow, look at all these people I can connect with and look at all this information I now have at my fingertips. And maybe people won't need to go to these fancy expensive schools or all this sort of decentralization and all this information that it was bringing to people it was really, really exciting. And that did happen a lot. But we also sort of got to this place more recently where, you know, I think that dream is kind of living on to some extent, but there's all these other these other, other negative things that are going on on the web as well, right? Like there's all this fighting and conflict and there's trolling and it's a place where there's lots of hate speech and where groups organize to do malicious things. There's a cloud over the promise, I guess is what I would say. Is that something that you're concerned with, you think about? Yeah, I think a lot about it. You know, when you think about why it's like that, it's it's fairly simple in that, you know, a, a minority of people created these paradigms for the web. You know, you can argue that a web server is built upon this idea of sharing text information for research papers and a few images, and then it kind of evolved, and then the idea of tracking technology with cookies, et cetera, making it sort of more about advertising optimization. The web breaking apart with social media systems to walled gardens. So when we say the web, the web may be quite small compared to how big the walled gardens like Facebook, et cetera, really are. Right. And if you sort of look at how the systems are designed, like, you know, I have a friend who suggested that I, I change my avatar to the face of a woman change my name to uh, a woman's name also too and see what happens and I remember doing that and I remembered like you know within like a, a few 
minutes, hours, I'm being hit on or I'm being like voted down. Wow. And it just struck me how the basic architecture of the profile photo and name creates inherent inherent exclusion. But if you're a, a man operating online, you're like, no, this is how it should be. Right. You know, just show your face and show your name. And it has so many biased assumptions in it that they're really hard to break. And so when you were at WordPress, or Automatic, excuse me, you must have seen a lot of that too, right? I mean, there's so much stuff that goes on just in like the forms that you fill out and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Right. Is that something you worked on while you were there? That's something I definitely had a passion around. I was lucky to get to know Nate Matias. He's an expert on online harassment. And we were able to host some forums around exclusion versus inclusion. Like exclusion makes inclusion hard with technology. And it was bubbling up as a, a concern three, four years ago. Now it's sort of hit boiling point, not just because people are bad, it's because we have so many AI robots that are out there essentially doing harassment, like it's like auto-harassment. Right. We just don't know how much of that is just bots. How do you stop an AI? Yeah. I mean, certainly some of the things, one of the problems going on too is just that for whatever reason, that type of content seems to get promoted more. Maybe it's just because people engage with it more because they're there and it is whatever, but... It does. It seems like it gets out outside. You know, the promotion of it is outsized for how much of it there is. Yeah, well, as I opposed mean, to like, I don't get a lot of like super pushed, promoted tweets or posts that are like, you know, somebody's like really lovely, you know, message to somebody else. You know, it's a lot of a lot of fights and arguments and that kind of thing. It's the reason why when you used to go to the supermarket, the National Enquirer, et cetera, was so interesting. Right. Like, yeah. what? Elvis is alive? <laughs> I've got to learn more. What? That's how to like replace, you know, my balding head. What? Someone did what? You know, it's just uh, so seductive. Yeah. Um, do you think human it, nature? So do you? Th- I mean, do you think ultimately, like, we have a design problem? Um, I I think we have a. Um, I wouldn't say the design problem. It's a bit of a business model problem. Hmm. It's a better business to make something controversial. Right. It's how the system is built. I, I remember like maybe half a year ago or so, I was quoted as saying, design doesn't matter by fast company. I thought it was brilliant because, you know, you have an interview, maybe 20 minutes, you know, it's not fact-checked or I don't know. I've I, I probably said that in a longer sentence in the interview. But if you pull it out and just make it the title... Wow, is it like clickbaity, right? But you didn't walk in and say design doesn't matter, and then it and was then just, just like yeah. drop the mic or right. something, yeah. you know. And and actually, when I saw it, I was like really impressed because well, that's a really clever design to generate clicks, right? And sure enough, I mean, no one's gonna read it, right? The article they'll read that little tweet part, and it's like, oh my gosh, he hates design. How dare he? You know. And then I remember when uh, I was contacted about the follow-up piece. The follow-up piece was collecting like negative and, and positive things people said about me. But the title said, readers of John Mudd article say, quote, so it looks like John Mudd says. <laughs> readers <laughs> of. Yeah, you, you, your mind will skip over readers of. Yeah. And I said this terrible thing 
in quotes. And I thought, this is genius. <laughs> I, I released, I really, I mean it, not to yeah. be facetious. Like, this is really good design. Uh-huh. This is going to get even more clicks. Right. Long story short, if the business model is engagement, engagement will favor something sensational. Right. And something sensational is just about the soundbite. And nobody will read deeper into what was actually said or done or the, the more complex context around it. That said, for someone like myself who can get in that situation, I learned a ton because I could like read how many people hate me. I was like, oh, that's a good reason to dislike me. I, would, I wouldn't like me if I did that. I can't convince you that I didn't do that, but uh, noted, don't ever do that, right? Right. Or someone says like something positive, like, I didn't really mean that. <laughs> you know, so, so I can like sort of triangulate, you know, how to improve. Yeah. So I believe that, you know, in my new job, we have a new word. I believe in being dataful because being dataful is a kind of beautiful. Uh-huh. So I like a dataful approach. So I'm like, oh, okay, let's, let, let me hear, let me learn, let me adjust, let me iterate. So that is being dataful sort of like being true to the, the what the actual set of facts is? Is that what it is? Uh, dataful is just being curious about data. Curious about data. You okay. know, I think if you just assume like, no, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to keep following my gut. So I want to ask you what we should do about all that, but I also feel like maybe this is part of why you left there. Is that uh, fair no. to say or no? Oh, no, no I really okay. enjoyed working there. Not um, an automatic. I just mean like Silicon Valley in general. Oh, well, you know, uh, I like how you point out working in a cloud service company, you just learn a lot. And mm-hmm. by working in an all distributed company, there was no walls. So I could be in finance, I could be in customer support, I can be in engineering, I could just cover the whole space. It was like being like a cloud, inside the cloud. And I began wondering, though, about all these more established companies, the companies that tech is destroying, and wondering what happens if all those companies go away. Yeah. And is that a good world or not? So I was reading something and found this person, Nigel Voss. He's a CEO and publicist sapient. And someone said he's like the Steve Jobs of the consulting world. He speaks technology, speaks fast, you know, and I was like, oh. And I started listening to him like, oh, this is a really smart person. So uh, I thought I wanted to work with a company whose entire mission is to help established companies become digital. Hmm. So you took the job at Publicis? Uh, Publicis Sapient. Publicis It's Sapien. one of the yeah, pieces yeah. of it. You know, it's the company that built the first, like, E-Trade, built the first seat reservation system. So yeah. this goes way back. So I thought, this is a company that's been doing this for so long, I bet I can learn something. And I'm like in week 10, and I've learned so much. Like, if you see me sleepy, (laughs) I was up till 3 a.m. working on something with a team in Toronto. And wow, what an amazing experience. So what what kind of work are you hoping to do there beyond helping companies that need to go digital? Oh, well. um, Like, what does that mean? Well, by being the global chief experience officer, my job is to be able to look at a business and assess its experience and suggest how to improve experience. And that can mean design in the marketing, design in how the product works, design in how the employees learn, the employee experience, the design of how the factory workers in the back of stage are figuring things out. So experience that cuts through the entire company is my purview. So I thought it sounded really hard to Mm. do. Yeah. That's why I... Head in that direction. Right. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I read something where you call these companies the end-ups. Yes, there's startups and end-ups. And some people sort of like bristle when they hear the word end-ups. Because like, end ups is that a bad word? And right. I say, well, all, up. Yeah. all startups want to end up successful, right. and startups want to get bought by the end ups too. So that's the irony. But now I like to say that there's startups and grown ups. I mean, grown up companies are challenged by being able to pick up startup methodologies. Okay. Do you think those companies that you're trying to help that do you think they're in conflict with sort of like the Facebooks and um, not, techno- not, Silicon Valley companies in the world? Like, well, well, they're being disrupted. Yeah. I mean, do you buy anything on this thing called Amazon? I've heard of it. And when you didn't, you wondered, like, where'd you buy stuff from, right? Like, oh, I used to go places and buy stuff. And, you know, when you wanted to figure something out, you know, you used to go to this thing called, like, a library. You'd buy magazines. You'd buy things to learn. And, like, no, I'll just figure it out. So I think it's 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 disrupted, disrupting, killing so many of these grown-up businesses. Right. What impact is AI having on these companies? Um, I think AI plays a, a huge role, but in a, in a different way. One thing I've learned by working with these grown-up companies is that they all have a lot of data. They've never used it before. They haven't linked all their data records from how customers come in, how the inventory works. They have all the data. They've never, never used it the way that a company like Google can. Right. So a lot of what we do is, is solve that for them. Oh, interesting. Called uh, first-party data. Mm-hmm. So they just haven't done the exercise of like, hey, we can actually learn all this stuff from this data and create algorithms and software that can make really good decisions based on that. They just are not there yet. Better serve the customers, optimize processes. Yeah. Yeah. It's obvious to the tech people, but less obvious to those who aren't. Yeah. And what do you think about some of that work that you were doing around like UI and inclusion before? Do you think that's something that we're going to see not only in your role now, but do you think that's, (laughs) are we going to see you know, movement forward on that in software in the next few years? Do you think that there's enough energy around that topic and that question? I think that inclusion has come into the foreground for reasons that I think aren't obvious. And really in my role as chief experience officer is to point out that every experience now has this, I wouldn't call it problem, this challenge and opportunity. So one thing we've been popularizing in my new role, Publisa Sapient, is that every experience has four ingredients. Super simple. It's like salmon, no strat, salt, fat, acid, heat. You have salt, fat, acid, heat, you can make a great meal. 
I have a, a salt fat acid heat that I've deployed uh, as a sapient, and it's called L-E-A-D. It spells out lead. Experiences have to be light and fast. They have to be ethical and conscious. They have to be accessible, easy to use. And they have to be dataful. They have to use quantum qual data. Right. And if you think about that, if every experience has to have those four things, if it's ethical and accessible, it has to ask inclusion questions. Hmm. And so that's how I am taking that work I did before and putting into the practice of experience making and also brand making as well. It's a great recipe. Well, it's the ingredients and it's up to you. You can put them together. John Maida, thank you for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much to John for visiting us in the studio and speaking with us and for sharing that great sandwich story. Our early deadline has officially passed, but not to worry. Our final entry deadline for the Webby Wars is Friday, December 20th. If you're making great work on the internet, don't forget to enter. If you like the Webby podcast and want to support it, take a couple of seconds and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you really like it and want to go to the extra mile, leave us a review. For more information about the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com, that's webbyawards.com, or on social platforms at The Webby Awards. As always, you can reach me on social at DMDLikes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is that shiny, fancy, new, multi-level marketing expose podcast. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is The Webby Podcast. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.